main thing. Um, God's presence has already been moving and uh, He's spoken. He's already preached to us. He's already reached into our hearts through things like looking at Kenalora's 63 years of marriage. Um, that's a testimony. That's a sermon in itself. The tofu trip is a sermon in itself. Uh, people being sent out 20 years ago or more. Um, sermon in itself. And uh, families gathered together worshiping. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that some of your dreams? That you'd be able to worship with your mom and dad? That you'd be able to worship with your children one day? That together you would all be worshiping and serving God? How many people here have a son or, or daughter that needs still to know Jesus? Lord, we pray right now that that testimony would be their testimony, that they would worship with their children because their children come to know Jesus in the name of Jesus. We pray this. That's what we want. We're in community. We've already prayed for people to be healed. We've worshipped Jesus together. Sermons have been happening. And we're meant to be shaped and molded and be transformed by all of it. And now I'm just going to add a little bit extra and I do pray, and I know it's going to change lives. I'm going to, we're going to leave space at the end of this time to pray for you because I think there's many that, that, whose lives will be impacted and have already been impacted. And some of the things we've already touched on as a community, you need prayer for. We're going to leave space at the end for you to come down and get some prayer for that. Because that's why we've come, isn't it? To be changed, to be transformed by a living, real, active God. Amen. Can you turn your Bibles to Philippians 1? I'm going to be preaching from that today. Philippians 1. I've been inspired, well, we have been inspired as a community by the book of Joshua. And the theme that God has kept us in since the beginning of the year is the theme of taking ground. It's been the theme, taking ground. How do we take ground effectively for Jesus in our own lives and as a community and we've been inspired by the book of Joshua, but I'm going to dip into the life of Paul because lately God's been speaking to me through his life. The life of Paul, someone who took ground in the most unlikely of places. What comes to my mind immediately, and I'm sure many of you, is when he is in the prison in Philippi, and you're thinking in a prison, I mean, he's got his hands tied. He's got nothing he can offer now. How is he going to take ground? <laughs> the, the, the presence of God is so thick because they're worshiping him in Silas. And, and they, they see this, the earthquake and the doors open and the Philippian jailer, you remember the story? He thinks they've escaped and he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, no, don't kill yourself. It's God. And the Philippian jailer and his whole family get saved. And then they just get set free the next day through legal means. Uh, but in the midst of prison, Paul was taking ground. And I just think that's incredible. If, if we can learn from this life, some of you feel like you're in the midst of your own prison. You're trapped, going nowhere. And you wonder, how do I take ground in that circumstance? We're going to learn today how Paul did it. Incredible. Philippians 1, 19 to 26 he is now writing a book to the Philippian church. In Acts 16, he's in jail in Philippi. Now he's in prison in Rome. Seemed to be one of his places that he liked to hang out was prison. <laughs> Some of you might have been hanging out in prison as well. But for different reasons. Paul was there because he was pressing on with the gospel. One day we might have to face the same circumstances. At the moment, we don't have to in this country. Praise God. But are we ready when we do 
Paul was there in Rome. Now he's writing to the church in Philippi. And he writes this, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Wow, he's expecting some kind of deliverance. But here it goes. He goes on to say, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Wow, he's in prison. I don't want to be ashamed. you imagine? He, Paul, he, he is facing his possible... Uh, he's going to get his head chopped off. That's what happens. He, got, he gets beheaded in the end. We're not quite sure if it happens right here. We think he gets out and gets back in prison, and then it happens. But he's facing possible beheadment. Is that a word? Beheading. You can't put a mint on the end of that. <laughs> we, you know, preachers make up words all the time. His possible beheadment is, is in Luke. In, is in, so he's looking at that, and yet he has the ability to say, I hope that I'm not ashamed. Like the guy that stood behind the, at the firing, in front of the firing squad, true story back in the 1700s. Boys, I hope your aim is good. I mean, like the audacity, you know? Get your aim on. I hope I'm not ashamed when it comes time, if I have to die. And he carries on and he says, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you, not for me, <laughs> for you, that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. It's kind of like, convinced that it's better for you. What a pain. God's probably going to deliver me. And I'm probably going to have to stick it out. He's not actually saying that. But you could almost sense that it's in his heart. Like, geez, I'd rather go to heaven, but, you know, for your sake, I'm probably going to make it. Who talks that way? Who talks that way? Can you imagine sending a letter back? Listen, sweetie. I really want, I'm ready to get on and be with Jesus, but uh, for your sake, I'm probably going to survive it. Yeah, because you've been praying, and you need me, and gosh, okay. I think like, that's crazy. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again for your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. I mean, who talks that way in prison? And this is not just any prison. This, this was called, let me get it right, I'm going to mess this up. The name of this prison used to be called the Tuluni, Tuluian, ah man, I messed it up anyway. Tulianum, there it is, dungeon. So here's what Salus, the Roman historian predating Christ, wrote. It's neglect, darkness, and stench gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance. You know it's bad when historians are writing about prisons. When they take the time to actually describe this prison, that's where Paul is sitting at the moment. 
one of the darkest and hideous and terrifying experiences. I'm certain in this presence, in this place, in this prison, the damp is gnawing on his aged bones. He is not a young man towards the end of his life. And then he is able to pin these words, oh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But I'll stick around. I know I need to stick around because God has more for me to do with you. It's from this environment of discomfort that Paul has optimistic and hope-filled words. How do you do that? How do you get to that place? Even now as we're reading these words all these years later, it gives us courage to take ground, to press on, to push through. Exactly what Paul intended for it to do. He's taking ground even in prison. What does it mean then to live as Christ? It means that he was all in. He's all in. We've had that phrase a few times over the past few weeks. Are you all in? It means to be all in. There was a time when I was 12 years old that I had a hobby that I was all into. I was all in. And we had a motto that represented how committed we were. And it was skate or die. <laughs> skate or die. And I had, my, I had a Steve Caballero skateboard. Anybody remember that name? He was as good as Tony Hawk, still around. I actually saw a video of him on Facebook the other day. Old guy in his 50s going down half pipes. I'm like, what? I remember at 12 years old, I had my Steve Caballero board, and I was trying to do hand plants, you know, and it's basically you just kind of on your feet, hand as long as you can take before you collapse and just, you know, cement burns on your face. I remember standing at the top of a half pipe thinking, I can do this. I can do this. No, I can't do this. I can't do this. <clears throat> but inside of us, it was like skate or die. And there were moments where it felt like we were going to die if we kept skating. And parents did because they would tell you, you got to wear these pads. And they would, your mom and dad would buy all these pads. And you're like, I can't go out looking like this. And, and I have my t-shirt, skate or die, and I'm wearing pads. And so you'd go out with your mom, got it, I got it, mom, we're going to be safe. And as soon as you get around the corner, it's like, take the pads off, hide them behind the bush, skate or die. <laughs> we're all in. And we, I still see shirts that are like this. I've seen recently, soccer is life. Everything else is just details. Soccer is life. You could buy yourself a t-shirt. Sadly, what this is communicating is a little bit about what they think about their relationship with Jesus. Where is God in all of this? Many people live, or let me say this, many people speak as if Christ is their life, but they live like this. Life is family. Life is work. Life is success. Life is moving forward. Life is a hobby. Someone once says, your life is actually what you value most or where you spend your time or where you actually are most alive. Where are you most alive? 
your relationship with Jesus or something else. It'll show you where you're all in. Where are you all in? What really gets you excited? For many people, their passions lie outside of their relationship with Jesus. What does it mean to really live for Christ? To have a life that's in God, to be all in, because that's what it's going to take to take ground. It's what it takes. I had one of these when I was a kid. It's called a Mr. Potato Head. I don't know if you remember that. You've probably seen Toy Story. Well, the new one's out. He's Toy Story 4. And this, I haven't seen it yet, but no doubt he features in it. Mr. Potato Head. That was great. I had one of these. And, and what's so fun about this is that you could take pieces out and you could put pieces in and you could just make it look like anything you wanted to. So he could have feet if you want him to, but you, he doesn't have to have feet. He could have hands. He doesn't have to have hands. You just have the head, and then we would put the feet and the hands in all sorts of un, un, um, uh, savory places, and it would just end up looking really, really goofy. And I think so many people can live like this. We, we think of, when I think about Christians, I think of, of, I think of Mr. Potato Head because we can decide so easily which parts are going to be given to God and which parts will not be given to God. What we take with us. So often when we can come to church and our feet might bring us here, but we leave our hands behind. Happy to be here, but not happy to serve. Happy to attend, but don't ask something of me. I don't want to use my hands. I want to help. Leave our hands behind. We can sometimes come and bring our minds, our intellects, and we say, okay, I'm going to see what's going on here, but we leave our hearts back home. I'm not going to change my heart. Sometimes we leave our eyes behind. We get here, but we don't want to see if there's any needs. Sometimes we leave our mouths behind. I wish more people would do that. But if we were meant to bring our mouths to church, surely they were meant to be used to glorify God. And we can come, and we've left our hands behind because we're not going to lift them. We fasten them down, hold them down in our pockets or across our chests, and our mouths are shut. And we're watching everybody else and making judgments. But we're not all in. You know, to take ground, it's going to take... All of you. My children have started getting consumed with John Legend's All of Me song. And last night my daughter actually printed it out. We were listening to it in the car on the way home from somewhere. And she got home, she printed out the words. It's a beautiful song. All of me. Okay, I'm not going to do sick, is it? That's just, that's just dishonoring John Legend. That's just... That's just but the words are amazing. All of me for all of you. Isn't that what Jesus said to us? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? All of me for all of you. Is it the song that we could sing to him? Is it the song you can sing to him? 
Paul tells us in these verses what it's going to take. He tells us it's going to take our heads. Firstly, it's going to take your head. To take ground, we must trust and submit to God's way. Look at Philippians 1.19 again. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What does Paul mean, deliverance? What he meant was, one way or another, my deliverance is in the way that God has decided to deliver me. That's why he says, I'm either making it out of here or I'm not making it out of here. But either way, his sovereign plan is what I submit to. His way, not my way. And that's what I call deliverance. We decide deliverance is whenever things happen the way that we want it to happen. That's deliverance. Lord, deliver me on these terms. Get me out of here and, uh, and just you know, put some money in my bank account while you're at it. And just help, no problems again. And for us, deliverance means problem-free life. For Paul, deliverance meant all of Jesus, more of Jesus. And if it takes being in a prison, then come on, I got to have more of Jesus. Such a different way of thinking. That's what deliverance was, to submit to God by trusting in Him. And the reason I put it in the head, trusting God in the, in the, using the head, is because trust actually takes a decision. It's not just a heart. It's not just an emotional experience. It's an intellectual decision to trust God. That's what happens. That's where trust comes from. And in that trusting God comes the deliverance, the way that God sees fit. And of course, we pray for things for healing and for ways in which God might press us through, push us through, and that because we know those things are on God's heart. But we're trusting God in His way the whole time, never giving up on what He says. But we have to decide to do it. We have to decide to follow Him in every moment, in every way, in everything. What does this mean? It means that you refuse to do underhanded deals at work. Because you choose to do things God's way. You hold the line, and by holding the line, you take ground. That's what it means. It means that you choose to forgive that family member that's wronged you. Because you know it's in the forgiving that you take ground. Bitterness always loses ground. You stay bitter, you will lose ground. It's a choice to choose to trust God and go God's way even against your own fleshly heart desires to punish or to do the wrong thing or to get what you want. You say, no, I'm holding the line for Jesus. It means that you respond in the opposite spirit when people are dishonoring you. You don't have to defend yourself. Let God get your back. God's got your back. He can do it. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to dishonor them by fighting and tearing them down and bringing them down. You choose to do things God's way. A gentle answer turns away wrath, and that's what takes ground for Jesus. It's a decision. 
And when you do those decisions, when you make those decisions, you're not just taking ground for Jesus, you're actually strengthening yourself in your own walk with God. You're actually learning to take ground in your own heart. We were in New Mexico a number of years ago. My in-laws have a, have a cabin in the mountains, and it's absolutely beautiful. But when you go at Christmas time, which we always do, the snow can come really high. So we're driving up, and it was, it was a long journey to get there, so we got there really late at night. So it's around midnight. And uh, we, we get our car stuck, and we still have a, quite a long way to get up to the mountain to the cabin, but we're now stuck, and there is no one we can call, no cell reception. So we have to now get three little children and all of the bags and the luggage and the food, because we're taking it to the cabin as well, up the hill. Can't leave it in overnight, it'll freeze but the snow is over our knees. So we start walking up this mountain, and I've got to put, was it Jonas or Eden on my shoulders? Jonas, there's my son right there. He was about that size as well, and I had to put him on my shoulders. He's 18. How old were you then, Jonas? I don't know, but he was heavy. Let's just say he's heavy, okay? He was really heavy, and I was the only one who could really take the weight, you know, so... Uh, because Megan was carrying Eden in all the bags. <laughs> and so Jonah's on my shoulder, and uh, my brother-in-law had Eden, and then I think Megan had Day, that was a baby. You were four years old? Oh, I was hoping you were much older. <laughs> and so we're, we're hiking up this thing, and, and this mountain, and now on the edge, and, and I might be exaggerating a little bit, there was this drop-off. Well, we could have rolled and hurt ourselves. It wasn't quite as dramatic. But it was scary in the moment. And we're tracking through the snow. And we're just having to lift our feet. And I'm holding Jonas. And remember, I, I was singing. I'm thinking of the movie Life is Beautiful. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. We're not going to die here. In the meantime, I'm thinking, we could die out here. There are bears. There were. There really are bears out there. And we're trying to get up the mountain. By the time we get there, we didn't have to go back for the luggage. We have to carry the luggage through. We're exhausted. Frostbite on my toes. We got the fire going finally. We're freezing. Guess what? The next day, I was so sore. I was sore. My shoulders were sore. My thighs were sore. I don't do exercise like that very often. I was so sore. You know why I was sore? Because I'd went through something I'd had to push through, hold the line in opposition, and my legs were sore, and they were sore because they were broken down. And guess what happens when they get rebuilt? Get a little bit stronger, don't I? I get a little bit stronger. Trusting God sometimes makes you sore. Pressing on through opposition is not easy. But that soreness is building strength in you. You are gaining strength every time you hold the line at work, every time you forgive, every time you respond in the opposite manner. You are strengthening yourself. You are growing. You are taking ground, both for Jesus out in the world, for Jesus inside of you who wants to reign completely in your life. You start to grow in your ability to think God's way, to act God's way, and to trust God's way.
gonna take your hands to take ground secondly we must exalt Christ in everything we do Philippians 1:20. he says I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death now that phrase eagerly expect in Greek is actually one word and it means watching something with your head turned away from other objects watching something with your head turned away from other objects Paul was looking towards Christ and what his will and his plan was for his life and he, everything else didn't matter everything else it wasn't soccer and the rest is detail it wasn't skate or die it was to live as Christ to die as gain all I'm thinking about is Jesus here he's focused he's eagerly expecting he doesn't know what his sentence will be how do we live like that how can Christ be exalted in our bodies with our heads turned but with our hands being submitted to him all of our bodies and I'm zero in on hands because I think it's so sometimes hard to get our hands into the works of the Lord into the life of Christ all in our hands are used when our hands are used in excellence we start to exalt Christ in all we do when it's with excellence whenever I finish the job when I push through to the end when I don't cut corners when everyone else is I cut corners I get busy and I do the right thing even if it means staying late at work even if it means pressing in gonna do the right thing we work hard for Christ our hands when they are used for service to others we start to see that we're all in when they're not used to get us glory or to gain us praise notification or recognition but whenever they are served used to serve others oh, I just wonder how how much more of Christ we could look like and be like if we understood service at the heart of Christ we do it because we're all in for Jesus that's how you take ground our hands are used in worship to God then we know we're taking ground for Jesus when they're lifted in surrender in adoration in demonstration that he is our all in all how are your hands used in excellence service worship it's what it takes to be all in it's what it takes I remember Stan preaching one day about the, the hands of the servants of the Lord they sometimes get scarred they don't always they don't they, they don't look like my hands here that just types on type you know typing they, they, they're rough <laughs> when we start to really serve the Lord it takes our hands in what way does God want to use that in your life and your heart to take ground we must live for eternity verse 21 says for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain go to verse 20 
3, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. To depart, that little phrase, to depart, is actually a camping metaphor. Paul was a tent maker. So dying to Paul was like a picture of taking up his tent and going home. He saw life as a temporary dwelling place. You can see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2. He says, for we know, Paul says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Paul longed to be in his eternal home, his permanent home. To be all in with your heart, you cannot make much of this tent. You've got to place your thoughts on eternity, your eternal home. It starts to shape how we think and how we, we treat this tent. It's not that we neglect it, it's that we understand how much we invest and how much we don't. You know, when I go to a hotel, I enjoy a hotel, I love going into a hotel. You know what I don't do when I go to a hotel? I don't buy a new bed to upgrade that bed. I don't buy a new microwave. Oh, no, this microwave's not working. I don't get a larger flat screen TV. I brought this. They say, how long are you staying here, sir? Well, geez, I think I'm here forever. And they say, no, we don't think you're here forever. We're going to need that room <laughs> at some point for someone else. How much do you need to upgrade your tent? If this is temporary, what does it mean when the Lord Jesus says, no, you store up treasures in heaven? Why are you wasting your money on a tent? It's a sign that your heart hasn't yet grasped that Jesus, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and eternity is where I'm headed. Eternity is where I'm headed. It also shapes the way that you spend your life or you spend your time or even the way you prepare yourself. You know, if someone decides they want to be a doctor, and that's what they're aiming for is to be a doctor, guess what they do? They start to train to be a doctor. They start to really work on their grades so they can get into med school. They start to prepare themselves in a way that you would expect someone who's going into that profession. Well, guess what? You've got an eternal occupation. You will spend eternity as a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. Are you preparing yourself for that eternal occupation? You know, the best place to start is to actually consider if you will be with God in heaven. Where are you going to be in a hundred years from now? Because you will be somewhere. You're an eternal being. Some of you, this is the starting place. When I say, are you all in, some of you haven't yet even put your heart in. You haven't considered fully where you're going to spend your eternity. 
And the Lord would tell you this morning, you've got to start there. You've got to start there. And in starting there, he wants to start preparing you to live the life that you won't be surprised when you get to heaven. I, I, I don't know about you, but one of my main goals is that heaven will not take me by surprise. That I already know what Jesus looks like. I already know his voice. That I already know how to walk with him. I already know how to worship him. I already know how to be all in. And I'm in there. And I already know the songs like the Zulu one we're singing now is going to be in heaven. And I'm learning the different language. And I'm loving the difference. And I'm loving the variety and the diversity. And I don't get to heaven and think, oh my gosh. I was not ready for this. How do we get ready for heaven? Some of you this morning, your starting place is to just accept Jesus, and he will begin to do the work in you. I'm going to give you a chance in just a moment to actually respond to that, because that is your starting place. Think about this question for the next five minutes, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Where do you want to be in 100 years from now? It's going to take your feet, finally. Paul says, you see, to take ground, we must share God with others. Paul says in verse 22 and then 24 to 26, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, but it is ne more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. He wants to put his feet into action and to get to them again, even in light of the glorious prospect of being with Jesus, he's still committed to the end to get his feet on the path of the gospel. How lovely are the feet who take the gospel to people. He wants to stay for the sake of others. That is the heart of Christ. Recently, I've made friends with a Muslim young man, probably a little bit, uh, 32, 33. And uh, we met through just um, practical circumstances, and we, he was very keen to talk about faith. So I've spent a couple of hours talking about faith with him so far on two different occasions. And uh, what, the first approach I took was I started talking about uh, Jesus compared with Mohammed. We started looking at Mohammed's life and Jesus' life. Now, Mohammed has a, has a very, very checkered life. Nobody, not even Muslims, would say that Mohammed was perfect. Everybody that knew Jesus said he was perfect. The ones that walked with him for three years said this guy was perfect. Didn't kill anybody. In fact, he saved lives. Mohammed killed people and did all sorts of things. And, of course, it's justified in their faith because um, he did it all for good reasons and they find ways around that. But when we started comparing the two lives, Mohammed and Jesus, it was like we, I started, and I knew, I've read about Islam, so I knew a lot already. And so I, I was tell, talk, talking about it and, and from a head point of view, a, a logical point of view, it's like, it's obvious that Jesus was amazing. Even Mohammed himself said Jesus was amazing. Mohammed um, quotes and, and speaks about Jesus 25 times in the Quran. He agreed with Jesus. He loves Jesus. Muhammad liked Jesus. He was not against Jesus. He just did not think Jesus was the Son of God or God. 
And so he doesn't think that, but he, he promotes Jesus. So it's easy when I was speaking with my friend Ismail that actually um, Jesus needs to be considered. If Mohammed liked Jesus, then surely you should think about Jesus as well. So why, why would you not want to look into Jesus? And he says, well, I, I know what Muhammad says about Jesus. No, 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 not what Muhammad says about Jesus. What everybody says about Jesus. What other people say. Like the people that actually knew him. What did they say about Jesus? Muhammad didn't know him. So why don't you look at that? And when we started looking at it and we started comparing the life of Jesus, what came out of Ismail's mouth was he says, yes, I can see that they are very different. He says, it's chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese, Muhammad and Jesus totally different people. I said, that's wonderful that you see that. Now, if Muhammad couldn't get his life right, is it possible that he couldn't get the Quran right? Whoa! And I was like, no, 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 no. The Quran was from God. You don't have to be perfect to have it. I said, but it could be, could it be that he, that he missed it? So then we looked at logically why it makes no sense to go with Islam because Islam says if you are a faithful Christian, you can still go to heaven. Jesus says, no, you have to believe in me and then you go to heaven. So I said, wait a minute, if I go with you, I can still get into heaven. But if, you come, if, 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 if I'm right and you're wrong, you don't have a chance. He says, oh yeah. I said, well, so that doesn't make, why would I want to convert to Islam if I could still get into heaven by being a Christian. It doesn't make sense to me. So I'm approaching all these logical things, and then I left, and it dawned on me that I haven't yet fallen in love with Ismail. I was still busy falling in love with my own intellect <laughs> to, to reason this thing out and to say, oh, but look, no, you, that's dumb. Why would you do that? And why would you do that? And, and uh, Ishmael very graciously, really, entertaining these conversations. But inside my heart, I hadn't yet been all in for him. So I started reading and I started looking for books. It's very easy to find books that smash Islam and Muslims. Very easy. And to just look at it logically because it, you can actually tear the whole thing apart. The Quran, you can, you can rip into it easily. It's done. You can look at apologetics. Makes no sense in apologetics, that, that, that whole worldview. It doesn't make sense. And you can easily argue that. And you can watch debates with Muslims and Christians. And of course, we always think the Christians win and the Muslims think, no, we won. And we could do that all day. But I started looking for books that tried to show me the heart of a Muslim, the heart of somebody that believes differently than me. And I started looking, how do we, books that said, how do we reach Muslims, not how do we prove them wrong? I found a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Beautiful book of a man who was uh, raised in America but under strict a Muslim, Pakistani Muslim parents from Pakistan. And he found Jesus in the midst of this and he writes a book and sadly he died a few years ago at the age of 34, but he became a, or that age, he be, around that age, he became a Christian. Beautiful book. But for the first eight chapters, I don't know how long, for a lot of chapters, he's writing about the life and the, and the, the beliefs and the heart of a Muslim. Oh, so much so that he has to say at the beginning of the book, you might think that I'm pro-Muslim for the first few chapters because I want to show you the people. 
I want you to see my family. He wants us to see that these are devout people that are looking for God as much as we are and are thinking they're doing the right thing as much as we are. And as I read it, I started, my heart started breaking and I started thinking, I've totally approached this. I have not put my foot into the place of a Muslim. I've stood on the outskirts. I haven't decided to come in from the inside and say, how do I love you through this? How do I work this out with you? from the outside and pointed the finger. And it started to change the way that I'm thinking about how I use my feet for the karate chop or for the let me step over into your world and let me help, let me see, let me think it through, let me love you. Yesterday I went to the airport and it was full of Muslims. There must be a convention on because it was packed and they were all taking the plane back to Dubai or to Dubai. I don't know if they were coming or going or what. What is it? Hajj. Uh, I read about Hajj. I didn't realize it was then. But you know what I did realize was how my heart had changed. Before it would be like let me get through, just get through, just get through, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, go through the ropes. But this time I walked slowly. And I just looked and I just gazed in the eyes of the children and the men. And the one guy came and he brought his daughter here and they were saying goodbye to somebody. And I thought, that's exactly what I would do. It's just like me. I started looking and thinking and I just started praying as I walked through and just putting my feet places, just thinking, how, God, can I do this with my life to reach people that actually want to know you? They just haven't seen you yet. They're seeking Allah, but they might just find Jesus. And they might be able to find him through me. How in are you? When's the last time you tried to love somebody who was not like you? I tell you, it's very challenging. God wants that for us. It's going to take our heads that we would learn to trust and submit to God's way. It's going to take our hands that we learn to do things God's way in everything we do. It's going to take your heart that you would set your heart on eternity and start to allow your life to be shaped by your future. And it's going to take our feet that we would share God's love I'd love for you to stand with me. And I offered, or I made a promise that we would offer an opportunity for people to give their hearts to Jesus. And I'd love for us to close our eyes for a moment. God, I want you to know if you do not yet know Jesus, or maybe you do and you haven't been walking with him for a while, you have an experience, you've had an intellectual experience, but you haven't yet had a life transformational experience. I want you to know that the call on your life is the same call on all of our lives. It's not that God would say, you're not all in, you need to be all in. 
He's asking all of us to be all in, not just you. It's for every single one of us. You are amongst those that are on a journey of becoming more all in every day. And you didn't know it, but you're on that journey too. You might not have known it. But God's been wooing you, been calling you, been pursuing you. He wants your heart. And that's the beginning because He wants all of you for all of Him. For those that are aware that you need to make a decision to follow Jesus with your heart today so that you might have your eternity with Him, so that you might have your life transformed by Him and shaped by Him. And you know that's you. I'd love for you to lift your hand where you are. Beautiful. Thank you. I believe there's more. Would you please consider that question very carefully? Because this is your moment of saying, Jesus, take my heart. And maybe your heart's been hard. Maybe you didn't realize it's been hard. And right now you're starting to, starting to dawn on you. Raising your hand is a way of saying, God, I'm softening my heart. I'm coming. I'm here. Come to me. Anybody else? Anybody else want to respond? 